Obviously, 99 point whatever percent of the work, but they have commissioned always throughout history <clears throat> men to do a certain amount. And always, those men have faced trouble, trial, tribulation, and problems, and even most of them, actually, if you counted them up, most of them killed. So, uh, this is nothing new. It's what God has done in the past, it's his pattern, and it is to be anticipated. And that being the case, God loves us so dearly, so wonderfully, and those who will be faithful and accounted a part of what is about to happen will be called the apple of his eye. Now, it's the same apple that he turned his face away from because he couldn't stand to look at it because... I'm speaking symbolically here. It was pity and rotten and wormy and, and everything else. And he couldn't look at it. But he's given us time and space to repent, to turn to him, to clean things up and become very, very fruitful, hopefully. And then he can take the life in us. So he uses that apple as an example for us because we've always looked for good fruit and he wants good fruit so uh, he puts all these troubles and trials and difficulties on us to build patience, to build trust to build faith to know that he will take care of us because he loved us, he called us and he's accepted us and he is going to work through us so we can be very, very thankful in spite of the troubles that we're still going through that God is going to straighten it all out pretty soon and give us the blessings that the scriptures do promise. The only thing we have to do is do our part as it has always been. Mankind has always had to do his part and it's been really over history very few people who have been willing to do that. But in each era from before the flood on through, there have always been a few here and there who would stand before God and who would walk with him and whom he could work through uh, to accomplish his purposes, whatever they might have been, at whatever time in history. And he is certainly uh, doubling down on that here in the end and getting a people prepared to do the work that must be done. And we've been examining that uh, here just these last few sermons 
especially from toward the end of Zephaniah through Haggai in the first four chapters of Zechariah where he lays out very clearly what he plans to do here at the end. And he identifies uh, those people, his remnant and their leaders, as being that work of Zechariah 11 of the two witnesses and the people who were with them, those who were at the altar and inside, working with those outside when the time comes. So it's all laid out here for us, and the identities are made. Uh, once he says what he's going to do uh, in chapters 3 and 4, and it shows that the two anointed ones in verse 14 of chapter 4 are the same as the olive trees of Revelation 11. So we know very clearly this is truly an end-time prophecy that we are examining right here. It ties in very directly with uh, the book of Revelation. We'll take a little look at some of that, uh, I think, yet today. So let's get into chapter 5. Uh, he's been describing the leadership, Joshua and uh, Zerubbabel, and how they would be feeding <coughs> the seven lamps, the seven churches, uh, through the Spirit of God, the words of God. And then, in chapter 5, Zechariah says, I turned and lifted up my eyes and looked and saw a flying rope or a scroll. This had things written on it uh, that are very, very important uh, to be considered right now. Now let's understand that this chapter 5 is inset in the context of chapters 3 and 4 about the leadership and the work at the end. And then if you flip to chapter 6, you see, as you get on down low halfway through, that he's addressing the same people again in chapter 6. So what is in between here is during the time period of the two witnesses, the remnant, uh, the end-time work of building the temple in Jerusalem. So during that period of time, or surrounding it, or part of it, or parts of it before, during, and after, uh, is when this is. The timing is during this period of time that we are now addressing. So I see this flying scroll, and he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying roll, the length thereof is twenty cubits, and the breadth thereof ten cubits. Now, let's make a note here that the tabernacle in the wilderness was 10 cubits by 30 cubits. And the holy place was 10 cubits by 20. I'm not the holy place. The holy place was 10 by 10. And the, uh, the outer part was 10 by 20 cubits. So this is the same size as the part that they went into where the golden altar was and did the morning and evening sacrifice, the daily sacrifices were done there on that altar. And there was a golden lampstick there, which I think would clearly represent Christ. Uh, and 
a table where the showbread was. That uh, showbread was called in Hebrew, bread of the presence. The presence of God, or in New Testament language, the bread of life, who was Christ. So the Father was in the Holy of Holies, and the high priest could only go in there once a year to represent all the people. Now, of course, Christ is the high priest, but he appointed a man, Aaron, at that time, to do that particular uh, thing for the people, even though he, of course, represents all of us, did then and does now. But he still had men do certain things, and this was a very important thing that Aaron had to do, and be sure he was cleansed and his clothes were cleansed and everything was just right to go into that Holy of Holies. But outside that, uh, they did the daily sacrifice and the bread of life, which would come to be Christ in the New Testament, was there. Now, <clears throat> let's consider <clears throat> some scriptures here about this because I think it's important to the story that is being related here. Numbers 11 uh, and verse 16. The Lord said, well, Moses was having trouble here in the context, keeping up with the judgments and everything that had to do with the people, keeping them counseled, being sure they were going the right direction. And God gave him a solution here in verse 16. The Eternal said to Moses, Gather to me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people, and officers over them, and bring them to the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with you. So that was the center of religion in the nation, was this tabernacle of the congregation. And he was to bring 70 elders there to help him make judgments and to give counsel. Uh, Numbers 12 and verse 4. We have a, I have a little bit more added to that. Numbers 12. I already slipped over. I'm to go back again. Uh, and here I want verse 4. This is where Miriam and, uh, and Aaron had chided Moses for the marriage that he had made and they were getting out of line so the Lord spoke suddenly to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam come out you three to the tabernacle of the congregation and the three came out and he was about to make a judgment there of, of uh, Miriam and Aaron for what they had said against Moses so that being the center of religion at that time, God caused judgment to come from there upon Aaron and Miriam. So you have the 70 elders there to give counsel and judgment, and then you have a, an official specific judgment that God gives right there. Uh, Deuteronomy 31:14 also shows that appointments were made uh, to be there. I won't turn back for sake of time there, but judgment, counsel, appointments uh, were set up in front of or at the tabernacle of the congregation. So, 
we see in John 1.14 that Jesus tabernacled or dwelt. We build booths or tabernacles at the Feast of Tabernacles. So he tabernacled or dwelt among us, John 1.14 says. So he, ultimately then, is the one who uh, recommends us to the Father for eternal life, for blessing and cursing, for many, many things about our lives. He's there, and he came and dwelt among us. And we have another reference to the heavenly tabernacle in Revelation 13, 6, and verse 15, or chapter 15 and verse 5. So, uh, this tabernacle in the wilderness represented things in the New Testament church, including Christ himself, and have to do even with the heavenly temple and the heavenly tabernacle where the Father and Son are today, and who are going to come and tabernacle again with us, and they will be the temple of the holy city, uh, as Revelation 21 clearly points out. And even as we uh, consider this, uh, the book of Hebrews uh, mentions almost all parts of the tabernacle. So there, Paul, apparently Paul, was writing to the church, the book of Hebrews, and he brought forward the elements of the tabernacle, the pieces and parts of it, and the meanings of each for us in the New Testament to consider. So now Zechariah is writing this in an Old Testament time, but he's speaking of the New Testament church, and specifically of the end time New Testament church. Because this whole context is about that. So we need to consider what this line scroll means in relationship to the end time church and the world that perhaps is around us. So it represented the size of uh, everything about the tabernacle except the Holy of Holies, 10 by 20 cubits. And therefore, represents judgment and counsel and appointments. Uh, the world has an appointment coming up with God. There are many, many prophecies which tell them, gather yourselves, uh, get your bows and arrows and horses and chariots ready and come before me. You're about to fight the fight of your life. I'm putting those in my terms, but that's essentially what some of those scriptures say. So he said, this role is the curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth. For every one that steals shall be cut off as on this side according to it, and every one that swears shall be cut off as on that side according to it. So he's saying here that this flying role does represent judgment, that a curse will come to those who break the law of God. So, God is about to bring judgment on the earth, right? And it's from his holy tabernacle, whether it be this one in the wilderness, whether it be the current one, or the one to come from heaven shortly. Uh, it has the same meaning from beginning to end. 
throughout history is the judgment comes from God and his tabernacle and he who lives within that tabernacle is the one that makes the judgments. So Christ tabernacled with us and he and the Father uh, dwell with us in spirit today and will come and live with us and Christ of course said he is going to come there in Zechariah 1 and 2 and dwell among us during these end time years when the work is going forth and the two witnesses are going to do what? they're going to go out and use these spiritual things these spiritual meanings and the judgment and counsel of God and turn it loose on the earth you read in Revelation 11 how they will uh, cause plagues as they wish and all kinds of horrible things that are going to happen. So this goes over the face of the whole earth. And they are going to go to the whole earth and issue God's counsel and judgment and an appointment with death. The same things that uh, were used back even in Moses' day. Then he says in verse 4, I will bring it forth, says the eternal of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief, and to the house of him that swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in the midst of his house, and shall consume it with the timber thereof, and the stones thereof. So this judgment is going to be very deep and powerful and stay with the people who are sinners and continuing to sin and their whole society, their whole culture, their buildings, their houses are going to be consumed. So this is a very powerful and dire judgment that God is pronouncing here that comes from his tabernacle through those whom he has appointed. Verse 5, Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see what is this that goes forth. So here's an additional thing. He's already said he's going to use Christ and the things of the tabernacle to bring judgment upon the earth, and it is a very severe one. Then he sees something else that goes forth. And I said, What is it? And he said, this is an ephah that goes forth. He said, moreover, this is the resemblance, resemblance to all the earth. Now, an ephah was uh, a basket, a measure of, uh, of grain that was used at the harvest and carried the grain out. So it was a measuring device. Uh, if you had a pile of grain there, you didn't know how much was there. And if you were to sell it, you had to know how much was there. So we've used the same uh, nomenclature in a way, even in our society. I remember filling bushel baskets full of peaches or various other things and selling it by the bushel. Here it's an EVA that is used, not a bushel basket, but the size of, of that. And he says this represents their resemblance through the earth. So he's measuring what is down here and what is going to be done. And behold, there was lifted up a talon of lead, and this is a woman that sits in the midst of the ephah. Now I have 
over the years uh, related this to the church because all of these things happen first to the church and then to the nation or the world. And he's been telling us here <coughs> that out of those who were spewed out of his mouth, the entire Laodicean group of us, uh, that he is going to bring back a faithful remnant to finish his work. But what about the rest? Now, a woman represents a church in prophecy throughout the Bible. Well, represents other things as well, but that's one of the key areas as a woman represents a church. And he looks at this woman sitting in this basket to be measured. He said, this is wickedness. Uh, or perdition, it says in JFB, uh, Jameson Brown commentary. Uh, a woman sits in the midst of it, and this is a wicked woman. And he cast it into the midst of the ether, and he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. So I think this is tantamount to worldwide church of God being judged ahead of the world, if you will. Now she covers the whole earth as well. The church has members all over the world, every continent. I suppose most nations, maybe there are a few tiny ones that didn't have any, I don't know. But worldwide in any case. And she was measured and found wanting, and he tossed her in there, and then a weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. So he shut her up. There she was, and a lead weight in her mouth. And from the time there in Isaiah 39, where God said to Hezekiah or Herbert Armstrong in type, uh, your sons will be eunuchs out in the world. They'll be powerless. They can't regenerate. They can't produce. Uh, that's what a eunuch is. So here, he shuts her up, throws the weight of lead in her mouth, and she wasn't hurt from much after this occurred. Let's, let's see how the story goes here to confirm that. Verse 9, Then lifted up my eyes, and looked, and behold, there came out two women, and the wind was in their wings. Now I wonder if this is not a representation here of Worldwide Church of God as Sardis and the Philadelphia Church of God as Laodicea. Uh, so that includes everybody that was in the church, Sardis and Laodicea, because Philadelphia has not occurred yet. It will not occur until the 10% remnant who are faithful, a few names yet even in Sardis, and the rest out of Laodicea, that will come together having been found faithful and having repented, and they will then form the Philadelphia era, which will be protected from the tribulation, as it says there in Revelation 3. So, I think this represents what is left as far as after having been shut up, and uh, the rest of the Laodiceans who haven't been making much noise either. <laughs> they still try, but 
they can't accomplish anything. And all of their broadcasting and their pamphlets and their literature aren't calling people. It's just uh, a futile effort that they're putting out and very, very, very little fruit has come as a result of it. So anyway, uh, there came out two women and the wind was in their wings for they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the ether between the earth and the heaven. Then said I to the angel that talked with me, where are they taking the ether? And he said to me, to build it a house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set there upon her own base. Not on Christ's base, but on her own base. Now she was lifted up between the earth and the heaven. And I think that the symbolism there could be easily that she was not acceptable uh, in the heavens and not acceptable to the earth. In other words, unacceptable. In a basket, weight of lead over her mouth, unable to do anything. And you have two unclean birds that carry them back into the house. Those would be the uh, Pikachus, two unclean birds, and they took the whole church. Uh, what was what was at that time Sardis, and that which was already Laodicean and became identified as that afterward. But they picked the whole thing up and flew it back into Babylon, and then some people began to rebel against that and leave it and get away from it and seek to serve God. Now the problem was most did not really repent of what they were in worldwide and continued to build, try to build back that which was, which was unacceptable to God and man. And it's still unacceptable. So uh, they built their houses, they built their churches back in Babylon. They didn't come out of it. They've gone right back into it. And into the cities of it is where they've set up their headquarters. And there they've been set up on their own base. Not on God's foundation that is necessary. So he's telling what he's going to do to resolve the issues in Haggai and Zechariah and finish his work and then he gives us, in chapter 5, uh, a pretty good clue as to what happens to the church. And that's a judgment that is made because the flying scroll contains the law of God. And anyone who is not keeping it properly is going to be cut off and cursed as a result. Now... That starts with the church, of course, and Revelation 11 backs this up, where it tells the two witnesses that at the beginning uh, to only measure the altar uh, and inside the temple, and those that worship there, and leave the court of the Gentiles out. So this judgment of chapter 5 begins with the church, and then... Uh, God gives power to the witnesses to take that same curse, that same judgment against the whole world. So here again, like the rest of the prophecies, 
judgment on the church first and judgment on the nations and the world afterward. And I think that this represents that. And who are the two unclean birds that lead the world completely astray? Well, there's your beast and your false prophet. So we have one in the temple of God and his son, two unclean birds, and then we have two very unclean birds that lead the world into abject worship of Satan. And that's set up in Babylon or Satan's government. So I think chapter 5 really is pretty clear when you understand what God is doing here and the time element of it. So then let's get to chapter 6. And I turned and lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass. Now chariots are uh, weapons of war, but mountains in Bible prophecy and symbolism are governments. And these mountains were mountains of brass. So these are strong governments, or strong uh, mountains, strong leaders, whatever. But out from between them come these four war chariots. In the first chariot were red horses, and in the second chariot, black horses. The third chariot, white horses, and in the fourth chariot, grizzled or bay horses. Now the book of Revelation speaking of the same time frame as Zechariah and Zechariah 6 here in particular. So let's go back to Revelation 6 and see defined here uh, what these horses might represent. Now back in Zechariah uh, 1, we saw a red horse and the red horses speckled in white back here. And they were there, uh, the church still in the dark, by night, and they were to bring trouble upon the church. And that would last when the 70 years of difficulties in the church were over, then God starts speaking comfortable words. So he uses these horses early in Zechariah, some of them, to represent the trouble on the church. Then in chapter 6, we have a bit of a different scenario, but here in Revelation 6, uh, verse 2, uh, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. So a white horse can represent war. And then another seal was opened, and we have the red horse in verse 4, and power was given to to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, there's war, and there's given him a great sword, and then we have a black horse down at the end of verse 5. <laughs> and I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see you heard not the oil and the wine. So, the black horse then represents famine, a dearth of food. And then we have a pale horse in verse 8, and the, his name that sat on him was death and hell, 
followed with him, and power was given to him over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. So we have those horses represented there, and it tells what they do. So we come back to Zechariah 6, speaking of the same time frame, and have them listed here. Looking forward to the end time that Revelation 6 is describing. So in the first chariot were red horses. Well, what were the red horses? We go back and war, killing one another, a great sword. So we're speaking of a lot of death here. And in the second chariot, black horses, that represent, represented Bannon, I believe it was, we just read. Uh, yeah. So war and famine. And then the third chariot, white horses, which also represented death, and the grizzled and bay horses doing the same thing. All kinds of damage done and people being killed. We know by the time this story is over that Daniel seems to indicate that there will only be a hundred million people left when all of the Holocaust and the seven last plagues end and Christ comes back and that's all left, all there are left for him to judge and to set the millennium up with and judge them over a, a period of a hundred years each or a thousand years altogether. So here he's, he's talking about an awful lot of trouble coming from between two mountains and what those two mountains are perhaps remain to be seen right now the most powerful are Russia and China representing the north and the east uh, so perhaps that's what that is speaking of I don't know that for sure that's just speculative but uh, anyway two strong governments and power was given to the chariots with their horses to do these things. Then I answered and said to the angel that talked with me, What are these, my lord? What, what are these? You and I might be asking the same question. I know I have in the past, but this is coming clearer and clearer as time goes on. The angel answered and said to me, These are the four spirits of the heavens which go forth from standing before the eternal of all the earth. Now in Revelation 6, the seals were opened, and, uh, and the angels were given this kind of power. So here they're, they're opened up, and uh, where was I here now? They come from standing before the eternal of all the earth. The black horses which are therein go forth into the north country, and the white go forth after them. Now here you're talking about famine and war and death. And the grizzles go forth toward the south country. And the bay went forth and sought to go that they might walk to and fro through the earth, and he said, Get you hence, walk to and fro through the earth. So they walked to and fro through the earth. Now, as they walked, what did they have? They had the power to kill. That's what uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 6, talks about. So God's going to be opening these seals, 
and turning these things loose. Then cried he upon me, and spoke to me, saying, Behold, these that go toward the north have quieted my spirit in the north country. Now, what does that mean? This is the time of the end. God is raising up in great wrath against the church, against uh, the nations of the world, and of course, ultimately, the beast, false prophet, and Satan behind them. And he is very troubled. He is very upset. His anger is shown in many, many scriptures. So if he was going to have his spirit quieted, that means that his spirit was upset and troubled and angry. <laughs> and that is the posture he has against the world right now. And he's about to stand up and do a very marvelous and powerful work, and it is going to come through famine and war and death. So that is going to quiet his spirit. Once he turns that loose and makes war, it is going to appease his anger or quiet his spirit. Uh, we see in Micah 4 and 5 where we're told to come out of Babylon and the confusion. Most of the church has stayed in it and the cities of it, but he told us to come out there in Micah 4 and dwell in the wilderness. And a few have, and a whole bunch more are going to pretty soon, because 10% of the church are going to be coming. But God's anger will not be quieted against those who will not repent and remain worldwiders of Laodiceans. Uh, we have to repent of Laodicea in order to qualify to be part of what God is doing in the end. <clears throat> so, there's going to be an awful lot a famine and pestilence and war coming, and we know that this country is going to be a third by a famine, a third by and pest, famine and pestilence, a third by war, and then a third taken captive and a sword after this. And we see the beginnings of this already. We've seen pestilence come. It has been turned loose on us, and God said commissions the angels there in Revelation 6 to turn it loose. And it is the beginnings of that, at least, have already begun to occur. They've turned pestilence on us. Now we have a major truck strike in uh, Canada as a protest against the communism that they've instituted there. And now we see that uh, in this country, there's a growing number of people who want to do the same thing here. Now, if this comes to pass, and they don't do it, oh, you know, a weekend protest and then go back home doesn't accomplish a thing. Uh, but if they see it through and keep the trucks off the road, not only will we have the pestilence that has already been put upon us, but we will also have the beginnings of famine because without truckers shipping food all over the country in three to six, seven days, uh, people won't have any food. And then the real trouble starts. Uh, and lack of food then leads to disease and sickness as well. 
and we will be so weakened that uh, our enemies will have no trouble coming in after us and against us. It'll be a cakewalk for them. So, God is going to have his spirit quieted by this. So what I was going to say there in Micah as well, it talks about seven or eight strong men uh, who go out against the Assyrian and send them packing, and then they kill each other like they did back in uh, Gideon's day. Who knows? But God is going to make the church into a sharp, threshing instrument. He says that in Isaiah 41, and again there in Micah 4. Uh, the, the church is going to have power. And of course, he's then going to give the two witnesses the most power that men have ever had to go against the whole world and turn water into blood and turn uh, no rain and all kinds of plagues so much as they will. And this is going to begin to quieten God's spirit and appease his wrath because of the sin that has been perpetrated by Satan and this world. So I believe that's what chapter 6 is about up to there. Then it has a change in direction in verse 10. Take of them of the captivity, even of Heldai, of Tobijah, and Jediah, which are come from Babylon, and come you the same day, and go to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. So he's using some names here from the Old Testament. And they're yet to be identified because they're coming out of the captivity of Babylon to, as we shall see, the remnant church. That's what this is about in verse 10. So he comes right back to uh, talking about that after chapters 3 and 4. And 5 then, judgment against the rest of the church in the world. And then the turning loose of the horrible things that are starting to happen even as we speak today. They haven't reached their final crescendo, but they have begun. So take of those of the remnant who come from Babylon, and come you the same day and go into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. We don't know who that will be, but it's speaking of some people here at the end who will come out of Babylon. Then take silver and gold, and make crowns, and set them upon the head of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. So this is speaking of the Joshua of chapter 3, who will have silver and gold crowns, and have them set upon his head. Uh, He appears first in Zechariah 3, and appears first in Isaiah 40 and on, as the voice that is speaking, and later joined by someone who will uh, be his boss. Verse 12, And speak to him, saying, Thus speaks the Eternal of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. Now, Joshua is not the branch here. This might be a little awkwardly translated, but they... But they tells Joshua, look, behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. 
Now you remember uh, that, Zechar- that Zerubbabel is the one who laid the foundation in Zechariah 4, and it says he will finish the temple. So this is, it addresses Joshua first, then it says that the branch uh, will be revealed, and he's the one to build the temple or oversee the whole thing. So here again, you have Joshua in conjunction with Zerubbabel, who are the two olive trees, who are the two witnesses, who are uh, the ones described in Zechariah 3 and 4. And for that matter, the book of Haggai is leading the entire church or the remnant. And he even says back in chapter 3, uh, verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and the fellows that sit before you. So he has a congregation. For they are men of signs and wonders. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. So he says to Joshua and the congregation there that he is going to bring forth the branch, the vow, the branch, the right branch. Uh, and that Christ will do these miracles and the uh, eyes of the churches will be upon him because the stone is set before Joshua and that can only be Christ because he's the one that the seven churches will look to. Now, we'll make another reference here in a moment to show this. Uh, so it speaks of Zerubbabel, even he shall build the temple of the eternal and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. So he is the one ultimately in charge. Anytime you have two people or two beings, God always appoints one as being the leader, and the, the other one the secondary, like Moses and Aaron, like the father and the son. Uh, those cases were generally there. Now he had Christ with the twelve apostles, so it was a little bit different a way that he did it in that particular instance. But generally you had uh, one or two. And in this case, since God all through the Old Testament says that nothing can be established unless you have had it in the mouth of two or three witnesses, at least two, and even better if you have three. That way you couldn't have these situations where he said, she said, or he said, he said, where they're just accusing each other and you only have their own word to go on and you can't do that because they could both be lying. So God always said two or three witnesses, and here at the end he uses the exact same principle and says two sins, two witnesses out against the world. But remember at the end of Haggai as well, he says he makes the Rebel the signet, or the uh, flag, the flag bearer for God's government to come. So he is the key picture, key figure here, and Joshua is the high priest under him. Now notice he'll build it and rule. He'll be in charge of the end-time church under Christ who will be there dwelling. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So the context here is of Joshua and of Zerubbabel, 
and that there will be peace between them both. Now, they will have been separated for a period of time. Remember Isaiah 40 through 44 show only one voice. Then let's go to Isaiah 52. We've been there recently, but uh, it fits perfectly right here. Isaiah 52. <clears throat> here he's telling the church to wake up, put on your strength and your holy garments. And he refers to Jerusalem, the holy city. Uh, so he's referring to the church here. Is Hebrews 12, 22, and 23 clearly show. And he says, there'll be no more... Uh, the uncircumcised and the unclean among you. So he's calling the remnant out, and he's going to give them his righteousness, as Isaiah 54 shows, and he will not allow the uncircumcised and the unclean to come among them anymore. Now, he has up to this point, and they will be gotten rid of and allowed in no more. So he says, shake yourself from the dust and arise and sit down or sit up. O Jerusalem, loose yourself from the bands of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. And later in this chapter, he tells people to flee from where they are to come out of Babylon. And as Micah 4 says, come to the wilderness. So we're still a captive uh, in, the, in the hands of the world out there, and they have to come out. For thus does the eternal, you have sold yourselves for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. Christ will redeem us. He's our redeemer. No money involved. But we've given ourselves over into the slavery of this world around us. It becomes such a part of it that God became upset with us and spewed us out and said, now repent and come back to me and get rid of the Babylonian approach. For thus says he eternal, my people went down before time into Mithraim to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. So it was not only Mithraim, but the Assyrian as well who were involved in that captivity. And the Assyrian is coming against us here at the end. Now therefore, what have I here, says the eternal? that my people is taken away for nothing. They gave themselves over to Satan and the world and the worldly things. They that rule over them make them to howl, says the Eternal. Now, haven't we been doing that? We've been howling and moaning and groaning about bad government and Satan's way and all the horrible things that were going on, and they're getting a whole lot worse right now, day by day, week by week, and it's heading toward major war and problems that we read there in chapter uh, 6 of Zechariah. They make them to howl, and my name continually every day just blasphemes. You don't hear much about the glory of God anymore, but he is blasphemed. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. So he is going to make it clear to the church who he is and where he is. That's what it says there in Zechariah. I will come and dwell with them, I'll do miracles, and they will see that I'm there. 
Now, 90% of them are going to reject it, but 10% will accept it and come. Then in verse 7, he says the same thing that he did in chapter 40. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him, just one, that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that says to Zion, your God is in charge. Your God reigns. So, what we see throughout the prophecies, once we understood them, is that God has wonderful promises and wonderful opportunities for that faithful remnant who come to build his temple in his city and to serve him as a light to the world. So that has been the message that we have been reading in all these prophecies for all these years now. It's there. And then it tells us in verse 8 the answer to the thing we were discussing there in Zechariah 6. Thy watchmen. Now notice it was singular, him, the beginning of verse 7. Here it says, thy watchmen. More than one. Shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye when the eternal shall bring back or bring again Zion, that is, turn back and bless the church, is when the two will see eye to eye and sing together. They've been apart, they've not been seeing eye to eye, and they have not been singing together uh, for quite some time here, it appears. And then when these miracles are done in chapter 3 of Zechariah, the branch will be revealed. And he says to break into joy, the singing and joy, you waste places of Jerusalem, the church which has been devastated. For the eternal has comforted his people, he is redeemed in Jerusalem. And he will make bare his holy arm, his branch, in the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That's the message. That God is holy, and his branch, or his arm, Zerubbabel, is going to be preaching that along with, uh, with the Joshua there. So then it tells us, get out of the middle of her, be clean, and bear the vessels of the eternal. And this isn't a hasty blight. Uh, I'll be your guard, your re-reward, re re or guard from behind you, and be sure you're able to get there. We don't know exactly what the conditions will be here shortly when they start coming, but they aren't going to be favorable conditions, and they're going, to, they're going to need God's protection in order to get the job done. And then he says, his servant, that's Zerubbabel, will deal prudently, he'll be exalted and extolled and be very high. We just read how he'll sit on his throne and rule. Now, then it goes into a description of Christ and what he went through for us. But Zerubbabel is a type of Christ and represents Christ. So what is given here is what Christ went through and then shows that uh, Zerubbabel will also go through a lot of trouble as a type of Christ. But make no mistake, this is the whole thing here is talking of Christ and what has happened to him. 
But there are types, and as I've said many times, you and I, all of us, are types of Christ. So it's nothing here unusual that Zerubbabel be a stronger type of Christ than maybe the rest of us have been. Uh, we're all here to do the things that are said in Isaiah 53. We'll be persecuted, we'll be tormented, we'll be uh, misused and abused, and we're to take it patiently as he did. We're to walk as he walked, do as he did, and think as he thought. So that makes us all a type of Christ. Zerubbabel is just a stronger type, that's all. So then he shows how he's going to bring the blessing. Now let's go back to Zechariah 6, uh, where he says, The Zerubbabel will build the temple, verse 13, and shall bear the glory and sit and rule upon his throne, as we just saw reiterated in uh, Isaiah 52. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And Isaiah 52 then clearly shows when they will come to have peace between them and see eye to eye and sing together, and it will be when God turns it around. I have people asking all the time, well, when is this happening? Is this already occurred? No, this has not occurred. And the scripture is very clear when it is going to occur. When you see those signs and wonders of Joshua, or of uh, Zechariah 3, with Joshua and the congregation, it's when the branch will be revealed. Because that's when God turns things around and starts the healing process. And they will come together and see eye to eye and sing together. And then Isaiah 52 in the next verse says the whole congregation will sing enjoy and dance before God because things have turned around. <clears throat> so that's when they will have the council of peace between them. That means they're not together prior to this. Uh, don't see eye to eye, don't agree on some things, and therefore are not working together until those signs and wonders occur. Then they're going to see eye to eye. Now, verse 14, And the crown shall be to Elam, and to Tobijah, and to Jediah, and to Hen, the son of Zephaniah, for memorial in the temple of the Eternal. So it doesn't determine, it doesn't say who these are. It doesn't say who Joshua and Zerubbabel are either, except by job description. And here it gives some other names which don't mean a thing to us today. <clears throat> but there are four individuals who apparently will do some important things and be important to the job at hand that is building the temple in Jerusalem and the church. And they will be given crowns. Now, what time is it talking about? It says that again, verse 15. And they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the eternal... And you shall know that the eternal of hosts has sent me unto you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the eternal your God. 
So he sums it up there in verse 15 by saying, This is the time that Haggai was speaking of, the time of the remnant that his faithful would come to build the temple. Because it talks again here uh, at the end of chapter 6 of the leaders, just like it does in Haggai and in Zechariah 3 and 4, and kind of summarizes it and puts it all together a little better that we might fully understand it. Of course, the time of the gathering and the time that we have to diligently obey the voice of the Eternal, our God. Now, as I said before, we look at the Joshua figure there in chapter 3 and think, oh, that must be a filthy man. Well, sure. Uh, we have all been filthy. We have all uh, done wrong. Uh, we'll get to Malachi here not too long where it says all the tables were full of vomit. So God was not pleased with the whole church, and he spewed the whole church out. And it is up to us then, having been spewed, to turn from our apathy, our self-righteousness, our wickedness, all the things that are ungodly that we were in worldwide. Uh, it was the church of God, but it was in pathetic condition by the time it got down to uh, the 70s and 80s. And God said, no more of this, and spit us out, and said, now come, and let's do better. So we have to diligently obey in order to overcome Laodiceanism. And he's talking here of the whole remnant, isn't he? He's not talking about one man. He's talking about the remnant shall come and build in the temple. And they'll know that God is behind it. And this will come to pass with the remnant if they, we, will diligently obey the voice of the Eternal, our God. So he lays the responsibility on one man in chapter 3 as the high priest. And as I said before, Aaron, as a high priest, represented all the people. He had his own sins. He had to put on clean clothes and wash his body and represent a people that was sinful going into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. So a high priest is there as a representation of all the people. Just as Christ, as the ultimate very high priest, is a representative of all the people. Now, what he is going to do is save all Israel, as Romans 11 says, and probably most of the Gentile world. He is a Savior. He is a Redeemer. His death and his resurrection were for all men. Now, there will be some, I don't know how many, but some who rebel and will not accept it. They'll go into the lake of fire. But most people he is going to, through the power that he and his father have, shake the world up, bind Satan, and save most. And that's what all of this horror at the end, and these four chariots coming from the mountains and the seals of Revelation 6 are about. It's that God has been very angry at the church, he's been very angry with the world, and he is going to send out these war chariots to take care of the problem. And he's going to allow Satan 
and his henchmen uh, and their leaders of their nations and their war uh, material or their war power to do a lot of this. And it's going to be directed by God through his angels to allow these people to do it. And you know, he has to give permission. So God is behind it all, just like he was with Job. Job couldn't, I mean, Satan couldn't touch Job until God told him to. Then he could. And then he was limited in how far he could go. And Satan is the same way. He's limited against killing all of us, or he would have already done it. And when God casts him down to the earth for the final time, when he says, don't come up here and accuse my people anymore. You're back to the earth. You take care of your part there and quit accusing my people. Well, we see at the end of that chapter, chapter 12 of Revelation, that he sends out a war party, an army, after the church who were fleeing from Jerusalem at that time. And God drowns them in a flood. But he allows Satan to send that army after them, but he saves them. But that's the only ones he saves. And he allows Satan to have pretty much free reign over the last until the seven last plagues are done and only a hundred million left. And then hey, Satan's hand will be stayed. He can't do any more destruction. And Christ will come and bind him for a thousand years. So he's worked this whole thing out and is calling a remnant but we still have our part to do. And that's what we always have to remember is that these promises are all contingent and this will come to pass. God's positive about it. It's going to come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the eternal your God. And he's talking there again to the whole remnant that are coming to build in the temple right there in the same verse. So we all have to do our part as individuals to be the kind of people that God can use as a light and a witness to the world. The two witnesses are the specific official witness. But the church, the remnant of it anyway, the Philadelphia era that is to come, are also a light to the world and he's going to set it on Mount Zion. And there it will shine out through the Spirit of God to the whole world. So, yes, we have two witnesses, but we also have a whole remnant congregation as a witness to the world. The witness of the good of God and how he blesses them and takes care of them and protects them with a wall of fire and a covert over the top to protect them. So they are going to be pampered and taken care of in a wonderful way and that will be a light for the world to see as a uh, micro millennium is what I've chosen to call it. Uh, an example of what life under the Father and the Son can and will be. So they have an example of that set before them. And the two witnesses can point at that and say, look how things could be if you would just 
obey God and accept Him and His way. You can have all the blessings those people have. What a powerful weapon that will be to use to preach to the world. Because they have satellites. They can take pictures of it. They'll know what's going on there. They'll hate it. But they will have taken over Jerusalem and the temple. And they'll be ruling from there. And Zion is only a short ways away. Uh, it's, I, I measured it on Google Earth one time. I think it's only like maybe 30 miles of that uh, as the crow flies, maybe 50 or more by road, but it's, it's not very far uh, from Jerusalem, the true Jerusalem. And they'll be able to see the light of God shining from Mount Zion, from Jerusalem where they have taken over the city where uh, the Lord was killed, which will at that time be relegated to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Or Sodom and Egypt, I think it says in Revelation 11. <laughs> so they'll be right nearby. And that's going to bug them so much to see God's people protected just a short ways away from them. They'll probably be able to see the wall of fire. They'll see that the canopy over them is a protection from weather, from heat. Uh, they're living in a garden of Eden, and I'm sure that's where the garden of Eden was. They'll be back in it and protected there, taken care of, and it will grate on the nerves of the beast and false prophet and Satan. We'll be just a short ways away on the glorious holy mountain, ruling the earth in their own way. And they'll have these two coming out of there every day to go to a different part of the world and warn them and preach to them and try to convince them to serve God. And they will be persecuted and hated about all people who have ever been hated. So they'll have it the worst because it'll be the whole world who hates them, except for those few inside. The 90% of the church that go into tribulation uh, Satan will kill probably pretty quickly. So 90% of the church is going to die in martyrdom. Hopefully, a lot of them will repent. And there is a chapter, oh, 11 or 12, wherever it is, toward the end of this book we'll get to, which indicates that a, at least a third of them, I think it's who it's talking about, will repent and will turn to God uh, at the time of their martyrdom. They'll realize I missed the boat, and they'll repent and probably be saved out of it. So we'll see how that all works out. But uh, realize how prominent the remnant is going to be and that their leaders will have power over the nations. And it says that they'll be scattered and made, the mountains will be made as plains before Zerubbabel there in chapter 4. So they will be given great power. And that witness that the remnant church brings will have great power as well. They'll be blinding the eyes of the beast and the false prophet in Jerusalem. And that is going to increase the hatred and anger against the two and against those who uh, are being protected and being a light from Zion to the world. Maybe it'll even be set up where they could be preached to from that far away. Who knows? But 
certainly the light of God, and they can fly over it and see the wonderful, peaceful conditions, and they will resent it mightily. So, this is a wonderful picture of what is to shortly be for the remnant that is faithful and diligently obey God, and he's going to be sure that there will be some. He's opened it to you and me. He's going to open it to others. And we have the chance to be part of this. So let us diligently obey God and get as close to him as we possibly can and hope that we are included because he's going to do his work. The two witnesses will be, uh, and the remnant will be. It is the individuals that are in question. And we have to be sure that we diligently obey God and are part of it. I wouldn't want to miss this for anything. This is what we've been waiting for now since this message came clear to us. And certainly we want to be part of it. So let's do all due diligence to be sure that we are there. End of transmission. Thank you.